Patreon.com backslash sit down Zumok. Are you on the Patreon? Have you signed up for Patreon yet? What are you waiting for? You gotta get on the Patreon. For as little as three dollars a month, you get the episode a week early, plus bonus content, and you support a comedian during a pandemic. There's all kinds of reward tiers. Go check it out. You could also be a hundred dollar sponsor. You got a product, you got an agenda, you're running from something. For a hundred dollars, I will give you live reads. That's a steal, guys. Shout out to all the $100 sponsors from Token Trev, Donovan K, and Lisa Stewart. Go check it out. Patreon.com backslash sit down Zumok. Ladies and gentlemen, available for pre-sale right now is my latest album, which was a Sirius XM exclusive, Florida's Most Wanted. Well, now you can go sign up for the pre-order. Let's get this thing to number one on the iTunes comedy charts. It comes out. February 8th, Monday, February 8th, but you can pre-order it right now. Florida's Most Wanted on the iTunes. Go check it out. And we want to thank our sponsor, Silk City Hot Sauce. Come on, guys. You know about Jeff Levine and Silk City Hot Sauce. I got my own hot sauce. Z-Man's Mango Madness, Florida's greatest tropical sauce. And you can have it just for yourself. Use the promo code ZUMOC, my last name. You get 15% off your order, free shipping, plus... Jeff will throw in a free bottle of the Cherry Ciroc and some stickers. That's a hell of a deal. Let's get to this week's episode, Volume 4 of The Bad Guys with Earl Skakel, Theo Flurry. Enjoy. It's The Bad Guys with Earl Skakel and Chad Zubak. He turns to me and he says, why so serious? comes at me with the knife. Why so serious? Sticks the blade in my mouth. Let's put a smile on that face. And... Why so serious? All right, in association with Inappropriate Earl on the Sit Down Zumok podcast, we bring you the bad guys. With me, as always, the one and only Mr. Earl Skakel. Earl, would you like to introduce today's guest? I mean, I've tried to think of the proper, respectful introduction for this guest. Um, first of all, there's not many guests that I would get up for at 8 in the morning for, so I think that <laughs> magnifies his importance. Uh, he is a Hall of Fame NHL hockey player, a Stanley Cup winner, a man I personally hated growing up a lifelong Kings fan, but uh, now I love him because uh, as great of a hockey player as he was, he's a hundred times a better person. The legendary, and I don't use that term loosely, Mr. Theo Fleury. All right. Thank you, Earl. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, I really did, uh, watching you always do well against the Kings, I, I hated you because, like, you were a, uh, I guess you'd say a smaller player uh, growing up in a league of giants, and uh, you didn't back down. 
and uh, you kind of played like you live your life. You know, you always got back up and uh, you had that toothless smile and I just wanted to strangle you. Of course you did. <laughs> well, I, I always say the greatest compliment you can be paid as a player was I hated you. <laughs> so if you hated me, that meant I was doing my job. So. No, well, uh, we both appreciate you uh, coming. Uh, I know you came to my house a few years ago and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to do uh, inappropriate. And uh, I was always very impressed by that. I'm not going to lie to you, Theo. Uh, about 95% of celebrities I ask when I say, you have to come to my house. They're like, uh, no, thanks. Uh, but uh, I was really honored. And I know that was... Uh, a couple of years ago, and we only had about 20 minutes with each other. Uh, so we kind of got to the not so happy times uh, in your hockey life. Uh, but hopefully today we, we talk about a few good times too. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, we were uh, we were debuting our, uh, our documentary at the uh, film festival in L.A. there. So it was uh, it was a it was a great documentary. Well done. And uh well received and uh yeah so Theo, is that documentary out can you watch it anywhere uh it's called it's victorwalk.com so uh it uh chronicles a journey that uh seven of us made uh i believe in 2013 i walked uh 250 miles to raise awareness around the subject of uh, child, child sexual abuse, childhood rape, uh, you know, all these things. And so it was, uh, it was very successful and uh, it really changed my life and changed my perspective. Uh, you know, when you do sort of crazy stuff like that, you know, it, it gives you a different perspective. And, uh, you know, I was incredibly inspired by the journey and, uh, meeting, you know, the thousands of people that we met uh, along the way who, you know, all had the same experience as I did as a child. And, uh, um, you know, we did, we did a lot of healing on that walk and, and, you know, like I said, gave us, gave us a lot of perspective and, and, uh, you know, provided uh, um, a lot of that inspiration for, you know, all the work that, you know, I'm doing now and continue to do. Earl? Well, uh, for those not familiar with your story, uh, you know, in America, there are some non-hockey fans. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you went through, um, I, I almost, without mentioning the, the person's name, uh, a Jerry Sandusky type situation, uh, which I think, you know, hockey to me is the only sport that, you know, when an early teenager leaves to play in juniors they're kind of on their own i mean that they're left uh, to stay with a billet family and uh you know there's a lot of things uh you know predators out there that i think take advantage of that situation uh has, do you think uh, the nhl and, and the ohl and the whl and the qmj ahl have they taken precautions to maybe prevent that from happening to kids today yeah, of course, you know, um, but unfortunately, uh, we're always reactive instead of proactive, you know, and, uh, but I do think there's been a lot of things that have been put in place to maybe detour these things, but, you know, I don't think we're ever going to stop this. Um, 
And, uh, you know, when child and human trafficking is the number one business on the planet, so child and human trafficking generates $150 billion a year. Jesus Christ. Which means, which means that it makes $70 billion more than Amazon. Uh, you know, I would say we, we've got an issue and we've got a problem. And so um, it, uh, you know, it's a subject that I'm in 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, you know, you add mental illness and, and uh, an addiction on top of it. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's what I do on a daily basis is, you know, people reach out to me constantly uh, looking for help and, and looking for healing. And, you know, we try to provide, you know, the resources and, uh, you know, some hope and, and uh, you know, work with them. You know, I, I haven't really, I've talked, I haven't really talked openly about it, but I was, I was abused as a child from a stepfather. And, you know, it, it's my whole adult life. I more or less have been trying to fix what he broke. I mean, is that something that is a constant struggle for you as a, you know, as a, you know, as an adult, mm-hmm. like you got to constantly be working at it. Yeah. Well, I call sexual abuse, a living murder is what it is. It's a living murder, you know, because a piece of your soul is gone and I don't think you ever get that back. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, not only do, do I have the sexual abuse piece, but I also have the mental illness piece and I also have the addiction piece as well. And so, um, yeah, it's a daily, it's a daily grind for sure. Um, yeah, some days are way better than others, but, uh, you know, I have a lot more tools in my toolbox now to be able to sort of live life on life's terms. And, and, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not fun to go through and, you know, and now you add COVID on top of it. And, uh, you know, we basically been locked into our houses for, you know, almost a year now. And, and, uh, you know, so you add that on top of it too, where, um, you know, you need people and you need relationships in order to heal from, you know, this kind of stuff. And so, uh, when you're isolated and, and locked in and, um, you know, when the simple fact that we've had more opioid deaths and suicides than we've actually had COVID deaths, what does that tell you? Yeah, why isn't there a ticker for that? Why aren't these state politicians putting a ticker for over, you know, suicide, opiates, like all that other stuff? I mean, that's just as important. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't understand why that's being ignored by the general. Ask Bill Gates. It's a good question for Bill Gates. I would love to ask Bill Gates. Earl. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'd like to talk to Bill Gates, too. Uh, <laughs> Let's get him know, on the like, podcast. Let's do a four-way here. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, I'm down. Uh, well, Theo, like, I look at, like, uh, the Los Angeles Kings, you know, that they were, uh, I think, by most uh, hockey uh reporters they have the the youngest prospect pool in the league and i often think of like the kid they drafted second overall this year he's 18 years old his name's quentin byfield and Mm. you know i don't think 
I don't think he's going to make the team this year, but uh, you know, next year he'll be in Los Angeles, 19 years old. I, I, you know, what steps do you think teams junior through Calgary flames can Mm -hmm. they take to make sure that these kids aren't uh, manipulated by predators? Right. Well, I, I think the kids now are a lot more prepared than we were for sure. Um, you know, the interesting thing was my draft year, you know, I was sitting in my, my parents' home in a small town Canada when I got drafted. And these guys now go to the draft with an agent, a nutritionist, a financial planner. You know, they, they have a whole entourage of people already uh, that are looking after them. And so I would say that these guys, you know, are, are a lot more prepared, uh, than we were. Uh, I believe there's a lot more, uh, willingness and openness to talk about this stuff. And, uh, but yeah, I, I think a guy like the, all these kids that, you know, go in the top 15 picks, you know, they're, they've been doing this since they were, you know, six, seven, eight years old. And so, you know, they, they prepared their whole life to, you know, to get to that pinnacle and get to that place. And so I would say, you know, like I said earlier, that, that they are way more prepared than we are, but you know, there, there's predators everywhere. And I think um, these kids fully, understand that they know it and like i said they're very well protected and insulated uh for sure hey just out of What's curiosity that? where's home where are you at right now i'm in calgary okay. yeah there buried under two feet of snow as well so yeah it's, it's <laughs> fun it's fun times in canada so you got earl in los angeles and you have me in tampa florida so uh, uh, we're all over the I'm, map i'm very envious <laughs> Uh, was it hard? You know, hockey is such a macho sport, especially in the era that you played. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and even going into your junior career, it was, you know, full of, uh, you know, huge guys like, uh, you know, Ken Baumgartner and Rudy Koshek <laughs> and, yeah. and uh, you know, uh, Link Gates. And, and was it hard uh, because of the subject matter to speak out? down the road because you didn't want to be seen as uh, weak by your peers. Yeah. That, I think that was probably the biggest reason why I didn't, you know, say anything was, um, well, let, let's, you know, let's, let's, you know, what happened to me happened 40 years ago and 40 years ago, we weren't talking about, <clears throat> you know, uh, my parents didn't even, you know, give me the talk, you know, uh, and, uh, um, and the reason why I kept it a secret, cause I knew that if I told at that time when it started, first of all, that I wouldn't be believed. And then second of all, you know, I, I, I knew that that would be the end of my hockey career. Right. And so, uh, I wanted to be an NHL player and, uh, and, and like I said, I knew if I, um, said anything that, you know, like I said, the, that would be the end of my career. And, you know, nobody was talking about sexual abuse at that time. You know, I, I, I believe that, uh, 
we were very good at sweeping this shit under the rug for many years. And, and, uh, but, you know, when the Catholic church is talking about this subject every single day, uh, you know, it's, uh, it goes to show the significance and, uh, how, how prevalent it is in society. And so, you know, the, the Jerry Sandusky, the USA gymnastics, um, you know, Hollywood, you know, so, um, but, but a lot of people, you know, when, when that little three letter word comes out, you know, sex, you know, people, people are like ostriches, you know, they stick their heads in the sand and, and all that stuff. And, and, uh, you know, it's interesting to me that, that it, that, you know, basically it's religion that's taught us that sex is bad and, uh, you know, it's a sin and all these things. And so, um, you know, a lot of people just won't engage in the conversation until you actually, you know, until it actually happens to them or somebody close to them or somebody they know uh, happens to them. And so, um, but I've seen some progress and, and uh, but we, we have a, a long, long ways to go uh, before, uh, you know, um, we, we significantly lower, lower the numbers, you know, like here's a simple stat for you. By the time a pedophile gets caught, on average, he has a, at least 125 victims before he gets caught. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. So, so uh, there was a story that came out. The Boy Scouts of America hid 5,200 pedophiles. Uh, hid 5,200 pedophiles in their organization. And so if you do the math, 5,200 times 125, 600,000 boys were abused in the Boy Scouts of America. Right. So, you know, and, and for me, um, you know, as an advocate and an activist around this subject, you know, I put these, I put this shit right in front of people's faces to make them realize that, you know, you can't bear, you can't bury your head in, in the sand anymore. Like this is, this is real and this has been happening for centuries and uh, um, you know, I can show you, you know, my daily email and my uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter messages to show you the significance because every day people are reaching out and saying, you know what, what happened to you happened to me. And uh, you know, I'm 40, I'm 50, I'm 60, I'm 70 years old. And I've never dealt with this yet. And I, I really uh, need to deal with this before, you know, before I die. <clears throat> and I would say, you know, the, a lot of these people who uh, end their own lives, I guarantee you they have some sort of history of abuse and, and, uh, and whatnot. Is that overwhelming for you, you know, dealing with your own problems and your own situation? You have people from all around the globe just coming at you with their, I mean, that's got to be a lot, that just the, I mean, just the force of that and just the, I mean, that's got to be overwhelming. Yeah, well, um, you know, I know that I can't fix people. I can't fix their problems. And what I can do is I can just share my story with people. And, you know, maybe provide some sort of, um, 
you know, hope for them that they also can get through what they need to get through. And so I think when I first started, um, it was, it was completely overwhelmed, overwhelming. And, but now I've learned not to attach any emotion to, you know, to what I'm doing, you know, people, uh, I can't help people that want help. Right. And ultimately you have to do the work. I can't, I can't do the work for you. Right. Right. And so, uh, you know, I can be assigning a sounding board. I can be a guide, but I can't fix it. And I think when I first started, I thought I could fix everybody's problems. Uh, but I quickly realized how, how quickly, you know, you can burn out and, you know, have a meltdown, which I've had a couple of times, you know, over the last, uh, 12 years that I'm doing this. And so what I've, what I've learned is, you know, I can't do the work for people. Um, people need to do their own work and, uh, you know, you just have to sort of lay out, you know, the, the options that they have in the places that they can go to find, you know, to find healing. Earl, before I cut you off here, I wanted to know about your hat. Cause I'm on your Twitter feed too. Is this some sort of athletic gear you, you got going on? Yeah, it's a buddy of mine out of uh, out of uh, Ontario who created uh, sober athletic wear, and uh, you know I've been sober. Geez, let me get my uh, my uh, my my counter. Today is five thousand six hundred and two consecutive days of sobriety. So, you know. Yeah, you could follow them at, on that. Yeah, at yeah. sober underscore where you could follow them. I'm on their Twitter right now. Yeah. Them. Yeah. So and all the money raised from from all the gear goes to to help people get into uh treatment. So Earl, give us a badass fact. I want a hockey fact about this guy. You know, you're the hockey guy. Well, <laughs> well I think what's uh most and first of all before i do that i just want to say i i think it took a player of your magnitude uh, theo to come out and speak out about this because uh you know i think sadly we're all trained to listen to a, a bigger celebrity where as if this were just a fourth line goon that never made it to the nhl i think it would have been swept under the rug but because and i know this happened to several uh NHL players who, who chose to not speak out about it. And, and obviously that's their right. Uh, yep. But uh, thank you for exposing what goes on. Yeah. You know, while you were playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and uh, you know, there, <clears throat> unfortunately, <clears throat> you know, there's what six guys uh, that have come forward, you know, with, the guy that abused us. So that means what there's a hundred and hundred and nineteen guys still out there carrying this secret around that haven't found the, you know, the strength and the courage to come forward. And so, you know, and what was it, what, what's kind of interesting is, you know, I, I work in the prison system now too in Canada and I do a lot of talks at prisons and I do a lot of workshops with inmates um, in the prison system. And, uh, one particular prison I was in, uh, there was a guy in there who was also abused by the same guy that I was abused by. And, uh, 
about a month ago, he came out uh, with his story uh, for the simple fact that he heard my story while he was incarcerated in prison and, uh, you know, found the strength and the courage to come forward. So, uh, you know, um, and I absolutely love working in the prison system. You know, it's, uh, it's something that I wish I could do, you know, every single day because they're sort of the forgotten people in the world. And, uh, you know, my story, you know, maybe has 15 layers of trauma and most of the guys that I work with in the prison system, you know, they have 40, 50, 60, 70 layers of trauma in their story. And so I know exactly why they end up incarcerated and I, I understand why they, why they end up in prison. And so, um, you know, it, and it helps me, uh, you know, gain uh, a perspective of, uh, you know, empathy and compassion and, you know, everybody has a story and uh, um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's incredibly rewarding to work in that, in that environment and work in that space. Now in uh, 1987, when you got drafted, uh, I, I think uh, people don't uh, realize that you, you just don't get interviewed by the team that drafted you, you go through, you know, maybe, 10 to 15 teams talking to you, were you ever concerned that uh, this subject might come up, uh, you know, from a team who, who researched your, uh, right. you know, junior career? Yeah, no, I, I, th I think I, you know, I buried, you know, I buried it deep enough and uh, you know, it, it did, it didn't come up. And, uh, but what's interesting was, um, and you want, you want a hockey hockey facts story? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Sure. So I tweeted this out this year, actually, uh, during the NHL draft. And, you know, I basically said, you know, it's not the number in which you get picked. It's where you finish. Right. And so the <laughs> first year of eligibility, I didn't get drafted. Okay. So 12 rounds of the draft went by. I didn't get drafted. Then the following year, I didn't get picked until the eighth round of that draft. Okay, so 415 guys got picked before me, and I finished 64th in all-time scoring in the NHL. So it's not, you know, where you get picked. It's what you do, you know, with the opportunity, right? Because, uh, you know, I, I've I've seen a lot of guys that had way more talent and way more ability than me who, who didn't make it. Right. And so all I ever wanted was a chance. And, uh, you know, fortunately enough for me, the Calgary flames gave me that opportunity. And, uh, you know, when I went to my first training camp, uh, nobody in the organization with the exception of the guy that drafted me, you know, uh, they all believed that I couldn't play in the NHL. And by the end of that training camp, I turned all these non-believers into believers. And uh, wasn't too long after that, uh, I signed my first NHL contract. And, uh, you know, that, that year, um, Joe Sackick and I tied for the scoring in the WHL that year. And uh, I was captain of Canada's national junior team. Uh, we won the gold medal in uh, Moscow in the Soviet Union. 
and uh, and then that spring I went to Salt Lake and we won the Turner Cup, uh, which is the IHL championship. And then a year later, um, I was carrying the Stanley Cup around the Montreal Forum. So within a matter of 18 months, I'd won three championship rings. So a World Junior, a Turner Cup, and a Stanley Cup in 18 months. And so, you know, all of these uh, so-called uh, super scouts uh, that had watched me accumulate 412 points in junior, uh, who were all non-believers, quickly, uh, like I said, became believers. Your kids know you're a badass? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they know I'm badass. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think what's so impressive to me uh, is just the fact that, um, you know, you being a smaller player in that particular era, uh, I don't think people realize uh, this was in the, uh, I wouldn't say slap shot era of the NHL, but, you know, you, you look at a kid who reminds me a lot of you, uh, the Canadians drafted uh, last year, Cole Caulfield, you know, he's, he's about your size. But, you know, in this era of the NHL, it, it's more uh, smaller player friendly, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Whereas, you know, back then, if you weren't, you know, I look at the, in your draft year, the kid, the Kings drafted Wayne McBean, you know, he was 6'2". You know, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, he was drafted fourth overall. And, uh, and you know, his career, you know, maybe didn't pan out like the Super Scouts, uh, mm-hmm. you know, intended like, you know, I look at some of the players you played with in Calgary. Uh, it was like a football team. You had uh, Sandy McCarthy, <laughs> who was a giant. Uh, yeah, we you know, had Jim- we had a tough team. You know, so I I came in and you know I fit real well in that uh, in that group. And uh, you know, there was there was a lot of tough guys, right? You know, and uh, you know what do they call it? The dead puck era. You know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what was interesting was when the game, the game went sort of, you know, bad when expansion happened, right. You know, the Anaheim ducks and the Ottawa senators, Tampa Bay lightning, they sort of ruined the game for quite a while. Right. Because, uh, you know, the only way they could win was to clutch, grab hook, hold, you know, that, that era. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I always say I love the era that I played in. Um, you know, it's when men were men, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, you had to be, you had to be really tough and, uh, um, but, you know, also playing, playing in the Western hockey league, you know, uh, there was either a bench clearing brawl or a line brawl every single night for, you know, we played 72 games. There was 72 line brawls, you know, so you, you, you know, you sort of, uh, you know, grew with that, that, uh, that style of play. And then, you know, and then they took the red line out and then they got rid of the hooking and the holding and the grabbing. And so, yeah, it's made for, you know, guys like Cole Caulfield and, um, you know, who's that kid that Anaheim drafted that, was it oh, uh, Zegris? Zegris, uh, you know, Zegris. He's, he's not the biggest guy in the world. You know, we have a guy here in Calgary, Johnny Goudreau, you know, who I could eat a bag of popcorn off the top of his head, you know, he's, <laughs> he, you know, 
but uh, you know, the era that we played in, you had to be, you had to be tough and you had to, um, you know, be aggressive. And, and uh, you know, the, I, I think the thing that set me apart from every other small guy that tried to play before me was, you know, I competed at the highest level, right. I fucking hated to lose. And uh, you know, I was willing to die in order to win. And I would say 75% of the guys that I played against in the NHL, they weren't willing to die in order to win. And, and if you weren't willing to die, then I own you and I can take you anywhere on the ice and do anything I want to you because you, you don't have that mentality. And so the guys that competed at the highest level, you know, that's when the game got fun because now I got to challenge myself because, you know, I can't compete against Mario Lemieux, right? From a pure uh, physics standpoint, I can't I can't compete against them. But you know, the one thing they 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 have a trouble they have trouble or scouts have trouble measuring is the size of your heart and the size of your balls, right? <laughs> and uh, you know that 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 was always you know my one intangible that, uh, you know, that I brought to the arena every night was, you know, was how hard I competed and how much I hated to, to lose. I've been listening to a guy named David Goggins as of late, just to get, you know, get the inspiration. And I got to tell you, you almost have that switch. He has just talk, just listen to you talk that edge. And how do you like, just take off that governor just to take it that far? I mean, how does, is that just built in you? Is it, it was, it was built in me, you know, um, you know, when you're a professional athlete, you're paid to win. They don't pay you to lose, right? You know, it doesn't say that in an NHL contract that that's the reason why we're giving you $8 million a year is to win, right? And when you don't win, you know, you should be uh, disappointed. Uh, you should want to work harder. You should want to compete harder, you know, all of these things. And so, um you know, the guys that compete at that level are the guys that are in the Hockey Hall of Fame, right? And uh, um, and I, I always had that, you know, chip on my shoulder. I always had that that attitude that, uh, um, that I wanted to win, right? And, uh, you know, 16 years later, you know, that's how long I've been retired now, um, you know, I have a, I have an awesome trophy case full of six different championship rings that I won. And, you know, a Stanley, a little mini Stanley cup that sits on my mantle and, and uh, you know, and all those things. And, and to me, that's ultimately uh, why we pursue professional careers is not to fucking make millions of dollars because I would have done it for free because that's how much I enjoyed playing. And that's how much I enjoyed competing was, it's not about the money. It's about fucking winning. And, uh, you know, ask Dan Marino what his biggest regret is in life. And he doesn't have a Super Bowl, which means it doesn't put him in the upper echelon of, of quarterbacks. You know, he has all the, the stats and everything. And, you know, stats are for fucking losers, right? Yeah. It's <laughs> about, it's about winning. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, I feel, very blessed and very fortunate that I 
was in a lot of winning situations and a lot of winning opportunities and, and uh, yeah. So, you know, there's, there's very few people uh, on the planet who have a world junior championship, uh, uh, an Olympic gold medalist medal in a world cup of hockey, you know, ring, you know, and I'm one of those guys. And so, you know, ultimately uh, that's what it's about is people, uh, people don't remember the losers, right? People yeah. remember the wins, right? And so ultimately, you know, that's why, uh, that's why we play the game is to, uh, put your, everything you have on the line, right? So physical, mental, and emotional, uh, you know, you put that on the line every single night. You know, uh, Kobe Bryant, I, I watched a lot of stuff, you know, when he passed. Actually, it's coming up on his anniversary here. And about how when he retired from the game, who played at that high level, and he put all that, whatever he had playing the game, he put it into his afterlife, like just with his, you know, his storytelling and everything else. Do you do the same with your, with everything that you got going on? Do you like, are you at that high caliber as a player off the ice? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've, you know, I've changed the landscape of sexual abuse. I've changed the landscape of how people talk about mental illness. I've changed the landscape of how people deal with addiction, right? And so um, when you, <clears throat> you know, when you play at the highest level, you know, you, th you think differently than other people, right? Because if, if I didn't, you know, then I'm just, I'm just average, right? And, you know, the biggest epidemic on the planet is not COVID-19. The biggest epidemic on the planet is trauma, mental health, and addiction. And they all live in the same house, right? Because we're traumatized as individuals. And that leaves us in emotional pain and suffering. Okay? And we can't see it, right? If you break your leg, you break your arm, you can see it, right? Yeah. Emotional pain, you can't see it. <clears throat> and so how do we leave, how do we deal with this emotional pain that's left behind from these experiences? Well, we tend to gravitate towards the dark side of life and we get, get involved in addictions, you know, alcohol, drugs, food, sex, gambling, you know, you name it. And we use that as a coping mechanism to suppress the emotional pain that's left behind from from those experiences, right? And so, uh, and eventually you get to that place where you got to make a decision. <clears throat> and I was there, you know, uh, 16 years ago, I had a fully loaded pistol in my mouth ready to pull the trigger and end my life. Not because I wanted to die, but because I was completely exhausted from living in emotional pain and suffering. And I tried everything on the planet, except honesty, right? And when I wrote my book in 2009, you know, that's when I got honest. And what happened was, uh, when I told my story, I started to get feedback from other people, right? It was like, at every book signing, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 people were coming up to the table and saying, Hey, man, I read your book. You told my story, me too, right? And and from 
from that honesty piece, I found the real true purpose of my life. Right. And I, and I, and I figured out the reason why I went through all that pain and suffering was to get to this place so that, so that I could create a space, create an environment for people who've been sexually abused to have a place to, to use their voice. Right. And, and so, you know, cause I always thought, you know, I was, I was supposed to be a hockey player, but I wasn't hockey allowed me to have this voice that I have now. <clears throat> and now, you know, we've created this, this space, trauma, mental health, addiction, you know, whatever it is, I can talk about any of those subjects uh, with a lot of experience and, you know, create, create some healing for people and advice and, and, uh, and all those things. And so, you know, like I said, I, I feel incredibly blessed, uh, to have found something post-career that is way more important than my hockey career. We only have a few more minutes, Eric, uh, Earl, you want to drive this thing home? Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you, you know, like you played obviously a lot of your career in Calgary, which is uh, not a small city, but a smaller Canadian city. And then maybe when you uh, went to a city like New York, it, you, you seem to maybe spiral a bit. And yeah. uh, I know um, recently, you know, uh, the great enforcer, Derek Bugard, who grew up in Saskatchewan, played yeah. in a smaller American city in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And then went to went to New York as well. And uh, like, do you do you think uh, playing in such a big city like New York for you, Mr. Bugard, and other players, is there something the league can do to uh, you know look after players who come from smaller towns and then they're thrust into right. <laughs> you know, New York yeah. or Los Angeles? Yeah. Um... Yeah, I don't, I don't know, you know, it, what, what was interesting was, you know, my, my, uh, when I got to New York, I was already sort of, you know, I'd crossed the line, so to speak. And they gave me $28 million and sort of just plunked me in the middle of New York with all my <laughs> issues and all my problems. And, you know, um, what I loved about New York was, you know, it was complete opposite of Calgary. You know, when I played in Calgary, I couldn't even leave my house, right? Everybody knew who I was and, you know, uh, I was adored by the fans and, and all that stuff. And so uh, what I loved about playing in New York was, was the anonymous part, right? As soon as you got two or three blocks away from Madison Square Garden, I'm just a typical New Yorker like everybody else, right? And, uh, but that's not a good thing, right? Because, you know, that place never shuts down and, uh, you know, you could, you could become anybody and anything you want to be. And, and, you know, I was running away from my demons and I wasn't ready to face my demons and I wasn't ready for help. And so, you know, uh, the big apple took a big, huge bite out of me for sure. But, you know, I loved playing for the organization. There's no better organization, I think, in all pro sports than than playing for the Rangers and playing at Madison Square Garden every night was, you know, was an absolute thrill. And uh, yeah, but unfortunately, <clears throat> you know, 
uh, I thought that I was ready for, you know, for that kind of spotlight and, <clears throat> and whatnot, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, it wasn't a good place for me. That's for sure. Well, I just remember, uh, my, my biggest memory of you in New York is, uh, in the one series against the Islanders where, uh, you were, uh, let's just say had problems with Eric Cairns, who is a, <laughs> yeah. is a mountain of a man, like a six, four, two thirty. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I remember the one game where uh, you kind of got into it with him and you were making the chicken, uh, motion to him, uh, cause he wouldn't fight Sandy McCarthy. And I'm like, this guy's got balls. I mean, I always thought you had balls, but like, I would not be, uh, antagonizing Eric Cairns was, uh, <laughs> was it at that was that and you know you also had a nice little uh battle going on with steve webb who would take right. these 300 foot runs at people uh mm -hmm. was, was that maybe the tipping point for your rock bottom you know in terms of i gotta get help that era yeah. <clears throat> well i started my journey my healing journey in new york you know that's when i entered the nhl abuse and or nhl substance abuse and behavioral program was, you know, towards the end of my first year in New York. And so, you know, we basically opened up that Pandora's box during that time. And, uh, so, you know, trying to manage, uh, you know, my, my sort of state of mental health and playing hockey at the same time and, uh, not having any coping mechanisms, right. They took away the booze, the drugs, the, you know, all that stuff away. And so, um, yeah, I was fucking crazy. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, but like I said, you know, every experience led to this experience, led to this experience and got me to, you know, the place that, that I'm at today. And I think that's, um, that's what I remember the most is, is, is that, you know, there were people there that were willing to help me. I wasn't necessarily ready for the help, but like I said, it all led to, you know, today and, and, uh, you know, being sober, you know, 5,600 consecutive days. Uh, you know, when I was in New York, I, I didn't think that was a possibility. I thought that I would, you know, that I would end up dead at some point. Right. Hey, and, personally on a personal, how are you today? How are you today? Good. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I still struggle with lots of, uh, you know, mental health issues, you know, I have depression and anxiety, but like I told you before, you know, I have tools now, right. And productive tools, right. Uh, you know, my, I say, uh, in my process, you know, my toolbox was filled with addictions and coping mechanisms, right. So that was Drugs, alcohol, you know, strippers, hookers, blow, you know, all that stuff was <clears throat> was how I dealt with the pain, the emotional pain that was left behind from my sexual abuse experience. And now today, you know, it's filled with, um, you know, meditation, uh, you know, helping people, uh, uh, spirituality, you know. All, all these things that, that, uh, you know, I didn't have before. And so, uh, you know, my pokey, my coping mechanisms are, uh, 
like not destructive, like they're not going to destroy me. Like, you know, the, the addiction part of it is. And so, um, you know, I, there's manageability to my life where there wasn't before. Right. And, uh, you know, I have lots of people on my phone I can pick up and call and say, Hey, I'm not doing well today. And, you know, they talk me off the, off the ledge and, and, uh, you know, give me great advice and, and sometimes, you know, all they need to do is listen. Mm-hmm. So Earl, we got one more. Don's uh, pretty strict on the, the timeout. So you want to close it out? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, get Theo's book, Playing With Fire. Uh, it's, I read the book in two days and I have the reading pace of a snail. So uh, <laughs> please go to Amazon and all the usual uh, spots. I thought we'd end on a, a happy note. Uh, Theo, it's almost a, 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 I'm going to name a name and you give us a sentence on that person. And, uh, uh, Bob Johnson. Bob Johnson. It's a great day for hockey. Uh, Sandy McCarthy. Oh man. That guy saved, that guy saved my ass more than more than one time. And I'm I'm not talking on the ice either. So, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, real fast, was there a moment in your NHL career where you marked your territory, where you established I might be a small player? You know, like for example, I was watching one of the thousand Battle of Albertas last night, and you got in Semenko's face, and he he was another. He wasn't exactly a small player either. Was there one particular moment where you maybe went at it with a bigger player where you're like, not this kid? (laughs) Well, we had a line brawl in Calgary against the Kings. Uh Oh, and and, uh, uh, I was a, I was a fourth line guy in Calgary. Right. So it ended up that, uh, they threw Gratz on the ice with uh, Jay Miller and Ken Baumgartner. And so our line was playing against them. <clears throat> we had called up this young defenseman from the minors named Kenny Sabrin. And uh, <laughs> Gretz, uh was skating up the wall with his head down. And uh, this young guy absolutely buried Gratz. And so... As soon as that happened, fucking yard sale on the ice, gloves flying everywhere. <laughs> and uh, I ended up getting paired off with uh, Ken Baumgartner. And uh, Ken hit me right square between my eyes and uh, split my forehead wide open. And uh, um, and what was interesting was, you know, I'm still uh, wrestling with fucking Baumgartner and I get this tap on my shoulder and I look and it's Gretzky and I was bleeding like fucking WWF. Like my whole face was full of blood. And so Gretz is like, let's get you back to the bench kid. And so for a split second, I thought, you know, I could really be a hero here. And I said to myself, should I sucker Wayne Gretzky right now? As he was skating (laughs) to the bench. Right. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) <laughs> and uh you know i that didn't happen because that would have been a really bad career move um but anyways i i went into the dressing room 
and uh, they sewed me up, uh, put eight stitches in my forehead. And then I came back out. I scored two goals, uh, and we beat the Kings 4-2, and I was first star of the game. And I think that was the the moment that uh, I think my teammates looked at me differently and said, hey, this guy's fucking here to win, and uh, he'll do anything uh, it takes to, you know, to win. And, uh, you know, I think that's when I – sort of established myself and actually the the GM came up to me right after the game and he said uh you know I don't think he'll be going back to Salt Lake and so I think you should probably go find a place to live and get your ass out of the hotel so that was the moment I got to tell you something I I didn't know much about you before this but I'm buying your book so if you get anything you got one (laughs) book out of this this was awesome you're a fantastic dude man very inspirational yeah thank you so much and I I appreciate it. And, uh, um, you know, Earl, I, I know the comedy business, that's a tough business, but, uh, um, the, the thing that I, I think is really important when you're struggling and in recovery is you got to laugh, right? The laughter is the best medicine. And so, uh, I always, I was, I just had Bill Burr on my uh, podcast, uh, last oh, week. And that's great. Uh, that's great. Yeah, he's he's a fantastic human being, and Bill uh, Burr. And I I laughed I laughed for an hour and a half straight while he was uh, while he was talking. So he knows a lot well, about just, hockey. Yeah, he's huge. I just have fan. one. I just have one last question for you. Uh, you know, because I know we're up against the clock, but uh, Chad will tell you uh, I hold a grudge like nobody else in this world. Yes, he's uh, very bitter. Uh, let's just say you're walking down the street and you see uh, either Eric Cairns or Ken Baumgartner. Do you walk up to him and say, hey, man, let's be buddies, or do you just keep walking? No, no, I'll stop and talk. That's the greatest thing about hockey is, you know, we used to fucking beat the shit out of each other on the ice, and then we'd all meet up at the bar after and fucking drink our faces off together. So, you know, that's what's great about the sport is, you know, when you're on the ice, you have a job to do, and that's to win, and that's to compete against each other. And when you leave the rink, then, you know, you leave all that shit aside and, and uh, become human beings. That's the opposite of comedy. Uh, as comedians, I, I'm, I'm still <laughs> not talking to one of my best friends for 12 years, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you and him can book a therapy session with me and we'll work it out together. That sounds good. We'll come on your podcast. <laughs> there you go. Oh, oh, believe me, I need to uh, talk to you sooner than later, Theo. But uh, oh, I'm I available mean. anytime. Theo, anything you want to plug before we let you go? Yeah. So um, I just started working for this uh, medical tech company and we have a, we have a really cool app that uh, uh, has binaural beats. Uh, So what it is, is, you know, we have several different categories in the mental health space on our app, Uh, anti-depression, anti-anxiety, motivation, whatnot. And what they are is they're 10 minute tracks that you, uh, that you put, uh, put a set of headphones on. And uh, unlike meditation, you know, the app does all the work for you. And, uh, you know, I, I say that I've done probably, you know, over a thousand hours of therapy and, and in therapy, 
uh, I haven't found a tool that can sort of uh, recalibrate my nervous system and recalibrate my brain chemistry. And that's what our app does. And uh, we've had tremendous amount of success. And I'll just tell you a quick story about the app. So I have a friend who did a couple tours in uh, Afghanistan. And when he came back, he suffered from nightmares for 27 years. Hmm. And in two days of using our app, uh, he got rid of the nightmares by using our app. And so uh, on the app store, it's called MMS Mobile Wellness is the name of the app. And, you know, for those of you that are struggling with, uh, you know, some sort of mental uh, disorder, uh, I believe that this app is a game changer. It's been a game changer for me too. You know, I've been using it for three months now and I can really see uh, the effects and, and uh, the, you know, the benefits from, from using uh, sound therapy as a, uh, as a way to uh, sort of rearrange, uh, you know, the chemistry in your body. Can you repeat that name? MMS? What I'm putting in my thing? MMS right Mobile Wellness. Mobile wellness. All yeah. right. I'm gonna I'll send you the link to the app as soon as we get off this. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. I would love to yeah. check that out. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's an amazing piece of technology. Awesome. Earl. I mean, uh, I just want to say thank you again. You know, Theo, every time I talk to you, I, I well up and, uh, like Chad said, I'm a pretty bitter guy, but you make me want to cry tears of joy and happiness for just your, your journey in life and how you are helping so many others. And, uh, just thank you again. And, uh, like I said, you were a great, great hockey player. And, uh, I just think you're a million times a better person. So thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Well, you know what, we're working on, uh, the Hollywood version of my story. So, uh, um, next time and I'm, I'm in LA, uh, you know, slagging our, our, uh, script, I'll uh, make sure that, uh, we get together. And if you're casting uh, Earl Sag, just to let you know, he's a SAG actor. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we could I'm sure we could find a part for you in there somewhere. Yeah, I, I'll just throw this out there. I could play maybe uh, Link Gates at 12 years old. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Out there. Yeah, perfect. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> no, but uh, well, I can't wait to see the movie because it, it's I, I could totally see it on Netflix, uh, or, you know, or in theaters or both. And uh, just thank you mm -hmm. again. Uh, I know Chad was excited. Uh, I mean, you've made Chad a hockey fan, so uh, thank oh, the NHL. Good. Thanks you. Well, <laughs> it's all good, man. Greatest sport ever. Toughest really guys, is, top to bottom. There it is. Well, Theo, oh, thanks again. And on behalf of Earl and I, uh, that was the bad guys. And uh, subscribe on iTunes, five star review, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Theo. Peace out, boys. All right, guys.